Welcome to the podcast M&A War Stories. You're joined by your hosts, Robert Heaton and Toby Tester. Each week, we walk through M&A projects where we've been involved in the course of our careers, unpacking the good, the bad and the ugly. Our purpose in doing this is to leave you, the listener, with valuable lessons and experiences that you can use in your own M&A projects. So without wasting any more time, let's get this podcast underway. Toby, good evening. Hey, Robert. Hi. How are you going there, Dan and Melbourne? We're, we're good, but are you still underwater in Sydney? Well, the funny thing is, it, it has been raining so much. You feel like you want to build an ark. I mean, maybe I should get my arc building skills and start building one in the backyard. I might need one. I tell you something, this has been the worst summer since I've ever lived in this country. And I've lived in this country for what, 30 odd years. This has yep. been the worst summer by far. It, we've, we've had so much rain. You kind of wonder when it's going to stop. And you think, when is normal Sydney weather going to return? Now, thankfully, yeah. today yeah. was a normal Sydney day, autumnal day, and a very pleasant one too and I just wish for more of them. I'm hoping yep. that normality will resume at some point. I don't know when. Ah, well, well, you can't get normality resuming because we've just called an election. <laughs> so normality's <laughs> off the cards for the next, you know, however many days it is. Anyway, never mind. <laughs> now, I, these last few weeks, we've been talking about corporate fraud. We have. It suddenly occurred to me, I was thinking about this, and I thought, mm. okay, there's the autonomy acquisition that got, you know, serious amount of fraud involved with it. And whilst it's not M&A, we talked about Elizabeth Holmes. That's right. And then, of course, in Sydney and in Australia right now, we've got the Melissa Craddock situation, the Ponzi scheme, which again, and all three of those instantly, you know, yes. they get great press coverage. They they're, they're large scale events. And I was sitting down and thinking, yeah, okay, but what if at the normal level, you're completing a, an acquisition, and there's some element of fraud in there. Financial fraud, payroll yes. fraud, product fraud, mm. whatever. <clears throat> you know, what can you do about it? Now, we'll, yep. we'll, we'll sort of walk through and unpack it, but I came to the conclusion that normal due diligence won't cut it. It depends, yes. mind you, Rob, but I, I, I take your point. Yeah, I mean, you might get a few red flags go up, and you sort of go, mm, what's going on there? But it, it almost got me to a point where I'm thinking, well, if you complete an acquisition and you've got some sense that there might be fraudulent activity going on somewhere, if you still want to go ahead with it, you're faced with almost going into forensic type DD. Yes. You know, but, but anyway, that's just sort of where my thought process has got to. But let me just put you on the spot. Mm. How do you identify fraud during an M&A? What sort of indicators would you normally look for? Well, for start, I, I, I question the term fraud because fraud sort of sometimes indicates a kind of a, a, a status of intent, where in actual fact it could be just basically, it could be misconduct or it could be poor practices, call it what you will. So if it gets to the point of fraud, that is something else. But let's, let's put that one to one side. Look, I, I think when it comes to things which look a bit, dodgy or funny there's a number of areas where that can appear and i don't think you even had to look too far i think sometimes it can just leap out at you and you think hmm that's a bit odd 
And there's a few things that, look, in my experience, and look, I've been involved in due diligence and, and certainly worked in acquisitions several times and come across some unusual things myself. For example, inventory. Is there an accurate inventory? Is it a properly accounted inventory? Is it an inflated inventory? Can they account for this? Sometimes they'll say they have this inventory worth that this much, but they don't actually haven't done a stock. Yeah. Sometimes you hear this term called nominal assets. I don't know if you've heard of that one before. <laughs> so sometimes these are assets which actually but they claim to be there, but they haven't been able to actually identify the individual bits and pieces that form those assets. So you've got those yeah. sorts of problems. <laughs> You've got problems with uh, sales. Sales are suddenly peak at the end of quarters or the end of year. Um, you think, well, that's a bit odd. Why do sales suddenly leap just as you're getting to a quarter in closing? Other things that are unusual is like strange management bonuses. You know, suddenly people are getting big bonuses, and you think, well, that's a bit odd. Well, why big bonuses? And receivables. Sometimes they don't manage their receivables, or the receivables are very, very old, and they're not being working on them. And you think, well, hang on a sec, what's going on? Yeah. But you know, one of the biggest things you can see with potential fraud is simply turnover of executives. Sometimes, yeah. I don't know about you, but you, you find it odd if you ever find yourself coming across a company <clears> where the executives are being turned over at a frequent level, and you think, ooh, okay. These, the, the things I just mentioned there, these are, these are all odd. Another one, like consulting fees. What are these consulting fees? These are a number of little red flags that, that would indicate to a trained eye that you should be probing a bit deeper. Yeah, and if we go back to the autonomy, um, not, not going to go into detail on that, but when you've got significant sales volume near the end of quarters or year end mm. suddenly appear and bingo you've just finished the year with a you know a brilliant finish the, the thought that's going into my head and i'm just going to take you back to your point mm. we say fraud but it, we're not talking about fraud in the criminal sense of the word we're yeah. talking about dodgy practice yes it, yes it could be corruption it could be a blind eye to poor um, OHS practices. It could be, yes. You know. It could be something, it could be lax processes, it could be a blind eye, um, it could be yeah. other things, and it might not be fraud in the criminal sense, which is which is more to do with intent. Yeah, and, and actually, while you were talking, there's an example a long time back. I got involved with a business doing some consulting work there, and about a year later, I got a call from uh, a guy who had been appointed as receiver to the business. And he called me and he said, oh, your name's come up and I can see you did some consulting work here. It, it looks like you've been doing consulting work over, you know, six or seven years with this mm. company. What? The work we did was sort of over a three-month period. Anyway, yeah. it, it, it turns out that um, there was all sorts of anomalies and expenses charged to the business to pay for the CEO's boat yes, and, and so on and so forth. So, but what it comes down to is you've, you've really got to pay attention during DD, haven't you? You've you do. Got... And uh, the thing is, is that, look, I mean, sophisticated fraud can be sometimes very, very hard to spot, no doubt about it. Even yep. audit accounts and audit procedures may not actually spot it, you know, and yep. so you may not see it. But having said that, though, the, just the things that you, we've just discussed about, Rob, you do see them and you think, oh, that's odd. And to the trained eye, that raises a red flag and that immediately means that you need to probe 
deeper and, and probe deeper you do. And I think you've got to sort of say, well, wh- what do we do? How, how do we go about, you know, probing deeper? And there's a number of different ways of doing that, of course. As you- well, and the first one is I've seen deals where people have then extended the DD period quite significantly. That's one way of doing it. Sometimes it's very hard, of course. If, you're, if it's a competitive, then obviously then the seller dictates the terms and you may find yourself not being able to extend the period and you have to work according to whatever the sellers dictate and that they say, do you do diligence in two weeks or three weeks? Then you, you work accordingly, in which case you've got no choice. And, uh, unless, of course, you're the, you've got a sole bidder, in which case then you can sort of determine what that, that period might be. I had, I had a conversation with somebody uh, not a few years back now on a similar topic hmm. and they turned around and said, oh, that's, that's easy to deal with. All you do is you just put a legal clause into the contract to make them accountable for the impact of the fraud. Well, you can um, certainly um, do some uh, protect yourself through warranties and indemnities, and and certainly that that is a possibility. But to be honest, that's a kind of like a that's a risk mitigating thing. But that's not the risk. That's not that's your last recourse, not your first. Well, interestingly, there was a, a very good friend of mine who's a corporate lawyer in that meeting, mm. and he just turned around and said, "Yeah, you you could do that." It's not worth the paper it's written on because your ability to reclaim those expenses and the losses resulting from a fraud, yep. forget it. It'll cost you it's, more money it's very, in litigation. very hard. Yeah. Very hard. <clears throat> yes. I mean, and that's your problem, Rob, is that you really do need to do this through your due diligence. Don't seem to somehow think that you're protected or that you somehow can make a claim after the deal is done. That is a very, very hard road to travel. And it it occurs to me that one of recommendations, if you like, or one of the suggestions in this is if you're doing an, an acquisition, don't be tempted to just follow a simple bouncing ball playbook of due diligence. You actually need to put people in there who an eye for this sort of stuff, who are poorly anomalies. A, a checklist approach to due diligence is not going to get you there. You've got to follow the evidence. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. so you've got to follow through. And like, for example, you've got to do what's akin to a quality of earnings assessment, which is really just going and taking up everything apart, the income statement and yep. probing and looking at those sort the sources of earnings and looking at the quality of those earnings looking at all the uh, financial statements and seeing how they're built and basically dismantling them into the fi- yep. finer detail i mean yep. it's a detailed process but what you really do is you get to understand where those earnings come from, but also the true value of the business too. So then you can do a more accurate assessment of its yeah. um, earnings capabilities and how you should value the business. Yeah, I think whichever way we look at this, you've got to put the time and attention and the expertise into really turning the microscope on during due diligence right. to satisfy yourself on the detail of what you're buying. Indeed, indeed. Although, Rob, you don't, that takes time, but some things surface actually are more readily of material to you, and you can see them in front of you. Like if there's staff turnover, if you've got a high turnover of executives, if there's appearance of management infighting, if there's a poor culture, these are all manifestations of a business that, in one way or another, is not being run 
in a um, ethical way, an ethical kind of way. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing. And and so there are other things that will surface that will be symptomatic. Yeah, and again, I'm going back from people that I've known and experienced, yep. and I can think of one exec who would, if there was staff turnover that was slightly higher than expected, mm. he, he would actually go and interview former management people and former leadership people mm. that had already left the business because once they'd left, they were more open to going, oh, yeah, well, this is dodgy as a nine-bob note sort of thing. Well, they couldn't have done that in the uh, Theranos business because they all had to sign non-disclosure that's, agreements that's after true. they left. <laughs> but again, that that, is, that in itself would be a big red flag. If it is a big red been... flag. Absolutely, yes. I mean, if yeah. you're having to sign a non-disclosure agreement, leave your company, that's a bit of a problem. So if you found evidence of fraud during mm. the DD, I mean, would you still proceed with a deal? Well, it depends what the, what the evidence of fraud is. I mean, it's materiality. I mean, if it's something happened in a, in a particular, I know, some remote location of a business, in other words, some, some subsidiary or some remote office or something, that yeah. may not be so bad. But if it's something actually in the head office, then that's clearly a problem, in which case it would, you, you wouldn't be going ahead. But put, the important thing about finding evidence of fraud, would you still be? I think, to be honest, it comes down to the process. And the key here is that yeah. when you go through a process, it's the process that determines whether you do the deal or not. Correct. Because you're going through, you're doing an assessment, you, you get people to actually do things, whether it's in human resources or finance or legal, and they make representations back to you. And then you bring it to an appropriate governance sessions that you have. And through that process, it becomes self-evident whether you're going to go ahead with this deal or not. So I would put a lot to do with process. And I think that's the key with, with all of this is to make sure that you've got a good due diligence process yeah. and that will decide the outcome for you. I would agree. But the message in this for me is mm -hmm. pay attention to the detail. I think I, so always. Yes, yeah. You can't skip over this sort of thing. You do need to go into the detail. Look for the high level, high, the flags and then follow the evidence. Look, you, you, the symptoms of this, it's like, it's like a sort of an illness or something like that. You will see the symptoms, and then you just got to probe and find out what the underlying causes are. Right. Now, some companies out there, of course, are acquirers. Yep. And so if you're one of those, you're more likely to come across poor practice, fraud, improper corruption, various mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. of different levels. But so if you're a serial acquirer, what sort of steps could you put in place prerequisite for managing that sort of risk? Well, I would say that as a prerequisite, you'd have a process which actually would look for those flags, say there are certain flags which indicate that there might be something happening here that is either unethical or fraudulent or something to that effect. And so... I would say to any, if that want to just look for certain key things. I, I, you know, mentioned them as sort of like unusual, high volume, complex third party transactions. Now, as soon as you see those, there's something it needs investigating. So, what I'm hearing is that you're saying you walk into the process assuming that there could be evidence there of poor practice, fraud, yes. et cetera. And what yes. you do is you bolster the due diligence process 
with those mechanisms for detecting red flags. Yes, you've got, you've got to find what those red flags might be. And then once you yeah. see a red flag, then you go ahead and follow it. And then you go down the right. rabbit hole. Go and, okay. go and probe. So, again, it's back to doing that detailed step-by-step insight into the business, putting strong strong governance in place. Indeed, indeed. And don't rely on audited accounts because if that's your sole reliance, because audited accounts only have a a scope in themselves and they won't go into the level of detail that perhaps a more forensic analysis would. Well, as we know, I mean, there's that old joke about the chairman looking for a new CFO and he... um, he interviews three guys and he gives yeah. the first two guys a, um, a P&L and balance sheet. And he said, can you tell me what my results are from that? And they both sit down and calculate it out and give him the answer. And he yeah. says, thank you, I'll be in touch. And the third guy walks in and he gives him the P&L and balance sheet and says, what do you think my results will be? Yeah. And the guy turns around and says, well, tell me what you want them to be and I can make it happen. Yeah, but Creative accounting is used at many levels, shall we say. Mm. But there's another thing that also, what I was thinking about this is that some of the M&A transactions that we come across are cross-border. Yep. And you'd have to say that that would significantly increase the risk of possible fraud, irregular practice, poor practice. Well, yeah. And why? Because then now you're getting into the area of different policies, different procedures, different processes, different, different ways even. of doing things, whether yep. it's to do with accounting, whether it's to do with asset management, whether it's to do with remuneration, incentives, and the list goes on. And then it just basically increases the potential for fraud. I would say exponentially, but it, it does certainly increase it. Yeah, well, cultural differences country to country often have a different view as to what we would say is fraudulent activity, mm-hmm. and they would say, what? No, no, it's not. It's, no, that's how we always that's do right. this. That's right. So, I guess there's one last point in this, and that is, let's say you've made an acquisition, you go through due mm. diligence, you know, looks okay. So, it's a normal acquisition by any stretch of the imagination. And then you've made the deal, it's closed, and then you start to see evidence of former corruption and fraud mm. in the deal. Uh, what, what if you find yourself in that position? What can you do? I think you'd have to write the asset, write the acquisition down, I think. Yeah. I mean, we touched on this before, and certainly in the previous podcast we've done, if you find evidence of corruption or fraud post-deal, you are going to have a very hard time to prove that in a court of law, and the odds are against you. So you'd have to have very deep pockets to prepare to do this and the ability to wear it through. I mean, if we take the HP and autonomy case, that deal was done over 10 years ago, and it's still going through the courts. And I think that's the point. When you've made an acquisition and you've gone through all the due diligence and then you find out after the event that there's been corruption or fraud or dodgy practices in the business, yep. you've, you've got to write it down. You, you cannot you, really... You, you'd have, yes, look, I mean, I mean, others might have different opinion or different experience, but in my own experience, where there has been acquisitions, where there has been some, I wouldn't say fraud, but some dodgy practices that suddenly unveil themselves, you have to wear it. And 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 say, well, that's perhaps 
just the the cost of not doing a more thorough due diligence or that's a risk you have to accept that you're not going to get everything covered through your DD period. The whole point of DD is to make sure you reduce that risk as much as you can. Yeah. You know, going back to would you still proceed with the deal? I'm just reminded of Greg Hutchins and he was a serial acquirer and they did deep dive due diligence on any acquisition they were going to make, but mm. he, he actually used to segregate the due diligence into five or six different categories. Mm. Uh, and they were things like immediate low-hanging fruit, yeah. positive revenue growth areas. And then he had two more, which was when they'd identified something that was a problem. It either went into a bucket that said recoverable or non-recoverable. And all of the findings in due diligence had to be summed down to one of these five or six different buckets so that you could actually then look at the whole thing and go, right, okay, there has been some dodgy practices here. We've uncovered mm. them. We've put a number on them. And the question is, is it recoverable? Can we do something that will reverse this and we can turn it into a positive? And the answer was yes to that. That's great. If it was in non-recoverable and it was a big issue, he would walk away. Yep. yep. You know, um, that's a good approach, actually. That's that's good. That's, I, I like the sound of that. Well, well, what it did was it it forced the due diligence team to put everything that they'd found into one of these six buckets. Yep. Right. And at his level as chairman, that's all he needs yep. to be able to say, "Yep, yeah, this is a good deal," or "No, it's not." So, <clears throat> I guess if we come back to this, then. So uh, we we started off by saying, well, fraud's too sort of hard a word to use. But what we're really talking about is bad practices, dodgy practices, Mm. inflated revenues, Mm. things like that. And what you've got to do is pay attention to those things in due due diligence. Mm. Picking up on your point, a good practitioner will assume there could be some elements of dodgy practice in there, so they will put mechanisms into their due diligence to find the red flags. That's right, find the red flags, yep. Right, and then, of course, you then put in place, and I'd call that robust due diligence, picking Mm. up on your words. Yep, yep. Right, you'd also put really strong governance around that, I think good governance is always important. I, I, regardless, it, it's it's the thing. And I don't know about you, Rob, but whenever I think things go off the rails or things don't work, you can often go back to the governance that the people yeah. weren't there in the right meetings or making the right decisions, and that's what governance is all about. And what we've just said is that if it's a cross-border deal. Hmm. The risk increases quite considerably. It does go up, yes, simply because the, the now, you're, now you're dealing with different practices. Like if you've just got one company, they might just have one rather unusual practice. Let's put it not dodgy, unusual. But then if you're dealing with a, <laughs> with multiple businesses spread around the world, well, then you are now dealing with, well, yeah, exactly. multiple you know, <laughs> funny practices, whether it comes to people management, whether it comes to how gifting and, and um, all this sort of thing, it, it can be a bit of a Pandora's box. And they're sometimes seen within those countries. As, again, I can think of many situations where I've come across that, where paying what you might call a, I'll put it in inverted commas, finder's fee, to certain people, uh, to open doors so that you can do business in that country was a prerequisite. 
Yep. So, and, and then finally, what we've said is, in wrapping this up, is if you've gone through all of that, you've put good due diligence in place, you've got mechanisms for red flags, you've got the governance in place, and all of those things, and you've made the deal, and you then find out that yep. you've got uh, misconduct, bad practices, fraud, whatever, that, that's very hard to recover from because it's almost too late then. It is. And then unfortunately, you're going to have to sort of write down a part of the transaction. And, and yeah. as you said, Rob, uh, buy yourself a bottle of scotch. Yeah, yeah. Because go, go, going to court with this sort of stuff at that stage, yep, yep. hard to prove. You, you're almost, you might as well take the same amount of money, chuck it on a horse at the, uh, the Melbourne Cup and hope you win. And <laughs> so, yeah. It's it's very hard. That's been a great conversation around that. Well, because I think through this conversation, Robert, it really made us think about what those red flags are. Like, I mean, we, when we talk about fraud, but how does it manifest itself? Yes, yeah. it can manifest itself in so many different ways. And that's what this, this podcast has given us an opportunity, <sighs> just to see it from a number of different angles. It's interesting what you've just said, because... Again, we've both been in business for a lot of years. and We've both seen all sorts of different practices. I've seen businesses where dodgy transactions were a result of one individual. Yes. You know, yeah, the yeah. CEO or the finance director. Or chief, chief CFO, yes, absolutely. Yes, I've you seen know, that too. The dodgy transactions and dodgy behavior mm. has been a result directly of them. But I've equally seen companies where dodgy practice is pervasive and it, it, it filters into the processes and systems of the business. Yes, yes. And the, the um, terrible thing is, Rob, is that then they don't know what they're doing actually if it is dodgy. So they're actually no. blindly going through something which is clearly unethical or untoward or, 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 you know, dare I use the word fraudulent, but they don't know it. And it no. could be something simple like revenue recognition, and they'd be doing it totally wrong against the accounting standards that, that are widely adopted when it comes to re recognizing revenue. Again, back in my old Dunlop days, we used to use titanium as one of the production materials, and it was extremely expensive. And occasionally, you would manage to secure spare titanium. And, and the practice in some of the factories was when you've got this spare titanium, hide it. But, I mean... That was that was bad practice. We were hiding valuable assets from, from the inventory from the business. Yeah. But we all did it because it was like, yeah, but that's what you do. And it was pervasive across yes, the business. You, you, you bug it. Whichever way you look at it, you'll get found out. Anyway, that's been a really good conversation because it's addressed the topic of how do you deal with bad practice fraudulent practice how do you identify it how can you minimize the risk and we've been talking about it in proper context not in terms of huge fraudulent activities yeah and it's, it's not as often like the autonomy or the third scale it's often something which is material but but not wouldn't amount to say what you might call fraud. Poor practice and poor policies, it's or perhaps yeah. what the behavior of one individual. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But as always, a great podcast. And I think we've done that one good service, don't you? I think so. I think we've done it well. So other than that, it's been a pleasure as always. And just leaves us to say we'll be back in two weeks. And it's bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs>